We come now, as our custom is, to the Word of God, to God's holy Word. I invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I don't really know who wrote Hebrews. I have a suspicion based on scriptures. I used to always be able to say the Apostle Paul wrote it. Now, if he didn't write it, I think one of his uh, co-workers did who knew him very well. Because there's a lot in the book of Hebrews that has such beautiful characteristics of the writings of Paul. And if you want a little bit of an informational uh, point to serve that up with, go to the last six verses of this epistle and look at the phrases in each verse and do a, uh, a comparison with others in his epistles. So if it wasn't Paul that wrote it, certainly one of his co-workers. Well, we uh, are found this morning in this great chapter of the ninth of Hebrews, which deals with the subject of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the death of Christ. One can only think back in, in, in our lifetime of some of the greatest events that have ever taken place. Somebody here this morning might remember the fall of the Berlin Wall and how momentous an event that was for East Germany to be brought into the uh, friendship of the nations, if you will, beyond the Iron Curtain of Communism. One of my favorite historical events in the history of this country is when George Washington crossed the, the uh, Delaware River in the freezing weather I believe it was either before or directly on December 25th, just six months after 1776's July 4th, uh, you know, Day of Independence. They were mired down, weren't they? They were defeated in Boston, ran out of New York, and Philadelphia looked hopeless. And so George Washington uh, devised a plan, a surprise attack on Trenton. But the problem is they had to cross the Delaware the icy, cold Delaware. And he took it to the Hussians, or the Hussians, who were a German mercenary band who supported the Brits in the war against America's independence. But guess what? We surprised them, and we won that day. It was a great victory for American Revolutionary Army. So, greatest events. How about Hitler in the fall uh, by the Allied troops in 1945. What a momentous day in the history of mankind when uh, Europe was liberated from the tyranny of a dictator who despised life and destroyed millions of persons, communities, civilizations in that time. So as we look back, how about uh, the day they landed on the moon? Was that a momentous event when we first heard of the rocket coming down and setting on the moon, the planet, and a man from Earth gets out and steps on to, to the moon. What a momentous event. And I'm sure we could think of a lot more, couldn't we? But the greatest event, my friends, the greatest event, not only in human history, uh, world history, but of all creation, is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord from glory. When we think about the death of Christ, we not only think about Golgotha's hill, the crucifixion, but we also couple it with his burial and the resurrection from the grave. That tremendous event that took place was broadcasted from the Bible, even from the beginning, Directly following uh, the fall of man in the garden, God came forth and judged Satan without hesitation. And before he judged mankind in the person of Adam and Eve, he pronounced the promise that the seed of the woman would be bruised, but the seed of the serpent, his head, would be dealt a blow. But nevertheless... It was a picture or a prophecy, if you will, of the coming death of the seed of the woman, which is, according to the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the promised seed. 
throughout the Bible, the death of Christ has been prophesied. We think of Genesis 22 that we just spoke about not long ago when Abraham went to Mount Moriah and placed his son upon the altar, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God who was sacrificed on our behalf. We see a little further on and we see a momentous chapter in Isaiah, the 53rd, that portrays Christ, that one who would be slain uh, for the transgressions of my people. That the chastisement of us, the Lord's elect, was laid upon him and by his stripes we were healed. We can go further on and we see beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ like the time of one of the visions of Zechariah who stood before the angel of the Lord and watched the vision of Joshua, the high priest, whose garments were tainted, filth, with polluted, with sin. And yet they were cleansed and he was made righteous. Beautiful picture of the Lord himself who took upon himself our sin. The Bible says he was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Throughout the Bible, we have beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we could address the subject of the death of Christ from a variety of angles. It's like a diamond, if you will. A diamond. However small this gem is, how beautiful it is. All the cuts, and the, the, no matter how you look at it, it's just beautiful. And now, no matter how we look at the, the death of Christ, it is in our eyes, in our eyes of faith, as we behold the sacrifice of God, how beautiful it is. Now, we don't look at the cross per se, an instrument of torture and highlight or glorify it in that sense. It was a scandal, if you will. It was a horrific sight. It was deplorable. But yet, it was the love of God displayed in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Early on, you remember how Old Testament saints looked forward to the death of Christ. We might have an idea that they were in total darkness and never could really visualize by faith uh, what was to come. And yet the Bible gives us clear evidence that that's not the case. Listen for a minute to the words of Simeon. You remember Simeon there in the temple when he saw the baby, when he saw the, the little Jesus of Nazareth. He prophesied as he looked upon this child, he said that child is set for the fall and the rising again of many. And then he says in this parenthetical, parenthetical phrase, I always get that word messed up, in brackets, if you will, says, Yea, a sword shall pierce thine own soul also. So right there then, at the birth of the Lord when he was brought in the temple for dedication, the prophecy that that soul, a sword shall pierce his own soul, was a, was a prophecy of his demise, of his death, of his decease. That the Lord was born to die. That he was born to redeem his people from their sins. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the greatest event that we could think of, in spite of the scriptures that portray it from the earlier on books of Genesis throughout to the entirety of the book of Revelation, in spite of all that, the Bible says that the cross is in the eyes of man foolishness. That the cross to the Jews is stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. Paul said, but to un, unto us, but, he said, unto us which are saved. The cross, when we think about the cross, we think about the crucified Savior, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we think of the greatest works um, God has ever done. We might think of creation, how beautiful it is, the depths of the sea, the heights of the universe, the stars and all that are in the universe. Yet, in terms of our vantage point, 
God's holy word says it is the death of his son that is the power and is the wisdom of Almighty God. And yet it's still spoken against, like the prophecy by Simeon, which will be spoken against. How true that is. How true that is. There are several popular uh, liberal theologians of the day that want to remake, rethink. One particular work is recovering from the scandal of the cross by um, noted teachers in Fuller Theological Seminary. And in this particular book, they want us to rethink the atonement. Because after all, the atonement was set in the primitive stages of Christianity. And hard words were used to convey this horrendous idea of justice displayed, how God angry with sin. This is a little bit outdated for our time and age. It's not relevant to the needs of the people. To talk about these horrendous views. Not long ago I saw a Facebook image that was removed just a day after it made the news of a crucifixion. And it was removed the day after because it was considered too horrific a scene, too deadly, too violent in nature. And so they removed the scene from Facebook. Another book that I can think about is a book titled Problems with the Atonement. And in this book, the author goes about and talks about cultic imagery that the apostle used in first century um, writings to convey such a violent death. You see, mankind has come a long way. And while they recognize man needs help, that he needs help in his lostness, yet the idea of the punishment of sin, the idea of a penal substitutionary death required by the justice of God is something that is skirted today. It's an offense. And so the first thing to do in order to satisfy mankind and be friends with everybody is to remove that which causes the stumbling block, to remove that which causes the offense to human nature, that lays an axe at the foot of human pride, destroys me, myself, and I, and raises and elevates the Son of God, the grace of God, for lost sinners in Adam that need redemption, recovery, reconciliation, atonement. There's no other way. And so these great themes of the gospel are being leveled today in the name of secular humanism. You know, one of the greatest apologists of today, uh, of an Indian descent, although an American, by the name of Ravi Zacharias, he's a great defender of the truth of Christianity, and he goes to places among the Buddhists, among the Muslims, among the Hinduists, among the secular uh, secularists of the day, the evolutionists of the day, of the atheists of the day. And he stands toe-to-toe as he defends the great doctrines of the Bible. What he says, I found very uh, interesting. He said, of all the major religions, all of them, of all major religions, he says, recognize the death of the Lord Jesus Christ with the exception of one. He said, in the Koran, the death of Christ is not mentioned or it is a myth. It didn't take place. They recognize his birth. They recognize the person, the prophet, the teacher, but not the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming out of seminary today, are ministers trained to avoid the great doctrine of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great doctrine of the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's righteous demands, leveled, appeased because of the blood that was shed at Calvary. But what did Jesus think of, himself, of, his, of his own death? What did he think about it? That's interesting. We find it on the night that he was betrayed, when he took the wine and he poured it in a cup, and he instituted the Last Supper, and he said, this cup is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord thought of himself. You know, what do we do with all these ideas and isms today that are floating around in secular circles? What do we do? 
we address it with the facts of the Bible. We teach and we preach the scriptures the way they are. We let the Bible speak for itself. Like in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, where the Apostle Paul says, walk in love. He says, as Christ loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling savor. What more powerful allusions to the sacrifices to the Old Testament, to Christ himself who was the sacrifice and atonement for sin. Let us never be weary of that great subject. Let us, let us prize it as, as the greatest event, the greatest achievement. Not tell you, preachers ought to have a chip on their shoulder when they preach. They ought to. It's called sin. They ought to hate it. You know? I tell you, God had a chip on his shoulder and it was sin. And he had to deal with it. It was nothing for him to create the universe. It was absolutely nothing to create man. But it was something for God to send his own son into the sin-cursed earth. And to take upon himself his own people's sin. It was difficult for God to do that. Unlike anything else. It is the power and the wisdom of God. The great scheme to save mankind. Well, in this particular chapter, I'd like to read for you Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. Let's start with 15 and go through verse 18. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That's that word that we mentioned. What did Jesus think about his death? He said, this is the blood of the New Testament. This morning, I want to talk to you about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in light of this idea of testament. What is it? What does it mean? For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's a neat word. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength. In other words, it's just a piece of paper. But once that person dies, it comes into play or it comes into force as the word here is used. He said, at all, while the testator liveth, it is of no strength. It is no value, if you will. Whereupon neither is the first testament was dedicated without blood. And I'll just stop right there for the sake of time and energy, if you will. Uh, One of the neat things about the book of Hebrews is the overlapping of truth. And much very similar to the rest of the doctrines in the Bible. That's why we talk about systematic theology. We believe in systematic theology. These doctrines all fit together beautifully, hand in glove, seamlessly throughout the Bible, and yet they're layered. You know, there's one of the proofs of the inerrancy of the Bible and the way it's written, inspired by God, is that these men, these scribes, that transferred the words from paper to paper as they distributed copies throughout the New Testament churches. They just didn't come to these words in this book in particular and say, well, let me just redo this. Because he's talking about the same thing, but he's using different language. Let's just make it all easy for everybody. Let's streamline it. We can chop this thing in half and keep it simple. That's not what happened. These words are demonstrated over and over again. In different ways, different languages, if you will, different ideas, but they all portray the same thing. That's why when you come to church, you got to bring a shovel because the great truths of the God, the wisdom of God, needs to be mined out of the earth. It's beneath the surface where the vulture's eye cannot see. And when the lion's whelp have not known the way, excuse me, Job's chapter 28, the deep riches of the earth lie so damp, deep that humans often 
do not even perceive that they exist. But it is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it is to the honor of you and me this morning to search out a matter. Don't you bring your brooms to church. You bring your shovels. Because it's the purpose of the gospel to dig deep into these profound truths and to enlighten them upon all of us. That we may be lifted up and imagine, rejoice in the joy that God has done for us. I'll tell you what, it's not, it's the word of God. That's what I said earlier. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Um, Pray that the word of God may have free course. That it may be glorified. It's not the gift. It's not the gift. It's not the messenger. It's the message. That's the great part. Let the Bible speak. I'll tell you what, it's a great need for our young men who are interested in preaching the gospel, maybe feel in their heart a desire to preach the gospel, to know something, to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to preach what God says. Don't you worry so much about the vessel in which it is. I've done that for years. I've polished sermons for years, but to no avail. What is required is the power of the Holy Ghost mixed with the Word of God received by the heart of faith, from faith to faith. Well, here we have in this scripture a lot of what's going on in terms of this idea of testament. He mentions Old Testament, New Testament. That word testament refers to the same thing in terms of covenant. In fact, the book of Hebrews mentions more. Actually, there's no place in the Old Testament where the word testament is used. It's always used in the New. And the book of Hebrews talks more about that word testament than any other New Testament book. Now, the word covenant is mentioned more in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the word covenant which means the same thing as testament, if you will, is mentioned more in the book of Hebrews. Now, just as a matter of fact, if you look your eyes over on the ninth, uh, staying in the ninth chapter, verse 4, this is what it says. Just to prove to you that you don't need a, uh, a real whole lot of books and no Greek and all that to know what I'm saying when the word covenant and testament mean the same thing. It says, in which the golden censer, the ark of the covenant... Overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot and the manna and Aaron's rod. It's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the what? The Covenant. Well, that same scripture practically is used in Revelation 11 and verse 19, and it mentions the Ark of the Testament. Same thing, same scripture. So when you go play movies of Harrison Ford and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, I don't want you to get to thinking that the Ark is somewhere down there beyond the crest of Egypt, somewhere in the ground. You know, remember he dug it up, helped the Nazis, or the Nazis expected to use it? That's just drama. If you go there in the book of Revelation, you'll see the Ark of the Testament in heaven. That's where it is. But anyway, it's just a picture. The point I want to make, first of all, to you this morning is this, that the Old Testament, Ark of the Covenant, ordinances, priests, sacrifices. It's symbolic. Always remember that. What's the purpose of the Old Testament? It's to symbolically set forth the work person of Jesus Christ. That's it. All those thousands of years of history, and you can name it, Noah and the flood, the Babylonian captivity, all those neat things, Achan, the earth opening up, All that stuff, you know. How is it that Saul didn't kill all the Amalekites? Where is the lesson in all that? Paul tells us in the New Testament those things were written for our learning. He said in another place, that was Romans chapter 15, and in 1 Corinthians 4, he said they are our examples. Speaking about those who died in the wilderness. The point is that all that stuff back there, good stuff, is written in a way... That it's symbolic. They show pictures of the great work to come. That's how you look at the Old Testament. Look at this, for instance, in the very first verse of the ninth chapter. Verily, the first covenant, literally testament, 
also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. What's he mean, worldly? It's of this world. He doesn't mean that it's pagan. He didn't mean that the sanctuary in the Old Testament was ungodly. He just means that it was of this world, of this time world, that it was temporary in nature, that it didn't or wasn't designed to last long, that it didn't have any longevity to it. Notice this with me in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, now watch what he uses, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from what? Dead works. Okay, so he's going to take all these things in the Old Testament and he's going to pit them against the eternal spirit through which Christ offered himself. So you have the eternal spirit on one side, you've got dead works on the other. What's the difference? Well, one's temporary. One's just for a particular period of time. One is uh, short-lived, if you will, temporary. That's what death signifies. It also means, in contrast with the eternal spirit, there's no life in them. They never were intended to have life in them. Never. They were always intended to be symbolic in nature. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. There he mentions the word shadow. Of good things to come, and not the very image of things. Watch this. So we contrast this idea of a shadow and not the very image of something. In other words, those things back there represented something, but they didn't really set forth exactly the work of Christ. They just pictured it. Now, it's probably a good thing, because they probably would have worshipped it if it was a true image of what was to come. So that's what he means by there, and not the very image of what was to come. Notice what I mean by that, verse 8 of the ninth chapter. The Holy Ghost, thus, or this, signifying, there's another word that portrays the idea of a symbol, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet, what, made manifest. And so those things were a shadow, and they, you know, they were scratching their heads. They were searching. The prophets were searching all along this wonderful truth that was hidden that they couldn't get their arms around, but yet it was something to come. And this is, again, as I reference back to Simeon and Anna herself, who, who when she saw the baby, recognized the Redeemer of Israel. And so there was allusions throughout the Old Testament of what was to come, but it wasn't fully manifested. And so now we have a definition of what we mean by the New Testament. Does it mean it never existed before? No. What it means is newly revealed. Newly revealed. So we have the Old Testament in symbolic language. We have the New Testament that simply means it's manifested. That New Testament in the uh, 13th chapter of Hebrews is mentioned by another word. Because while it's new, it doesn't mean that it just popped up. You know, when you buy a new Chevrolet, does that mean that the Chevrolet just started to exist? That new car you just purchased? No, Chevrolet's been around a long time. But that new model you have is brand spanking new. Notice this in verse 20 of the 13th chapter of Hebrews. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. In the center column reference, it says testament, same Greek word, the everlasting covenant. So while the covenant is new, the testament is new because it's newly revealed, where did it have its beginning? Where? It's an everlasting covenant. It had its beginning from before the foundation of the world. That's why the preachers talk about this everlasting covenant from before the foundation of the world. And so symbolism in Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament is newly revealed. And it's not symbolic, is it? It's substantive. Notice the words. The substance. What are we talking about? When we think about the substance of the atonement. Well, back there it was just a picture. And everything was done with formality. And you better do it right or you were dead. 
They put a rope around the high priest when he went through the holiest into the holiest of all because that's where God met with him once a year. And if he didn't do it right, he would be found dead and they would have to drag him out. Nobody's going to run in there after him. And so all that imagery uh, was symbolic as it pointed to the importance of the death of Christ and the importance of how God viewed it, you see. While it was symbolic in nature, there's no reason for us from the Holy Scripture standpoint to treat it trivial in that sense, that it didn't mean anything, it didn't represent anything. Oh, no. It represented everything that God planned from before the foundation of the world. And so, the Apostle Paul here is pitting one against the other. And he says, basically, that the the substance of the new is far greater. Of course, how do you put a number on it? How greater is it? Verse 11, But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, Now, can you put a number on that? Just how far greater is it? It's beautiful language. I'll tell you what it is. It's infinite. There's no number that you can portray and contrast the substance of the New Testament death of Christ with the symbolism of the old. It is infinite in its value. Well, let's look. It's not made with hands. That's the next phrase. That That is to say that it's not of this building. What's he talking about? Well... I guess if you can look over here and notice in the uh, I wanted to pick out a verse here but uh, it was made in other words the Old Testament stuff was made and that phrase is used here in the first nine verses Maybe we'll find it later. But the idea here is that there's a tabernacle that was made that was of this world. It was uh, ordained for divine service. It was a sanctuary. It was a tabernacle. There it was, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, verse 2, made. It was made with hands and skillful hands. They got the best guys, carpenters, skilled technicians from around uh, the tribes of, uh, of Jacob. And they made beautiful, ornate objects uh, for the tabernacle. Beautiful. I mean, you can look at all this. And one of the neatest studies in the Bible, and I'm sure you've been through it before, is the furniture of the tabernacle. You know this rail here? Well, they had uh, sides to this tabernacle that was in the wilderness. That's the one that they moved every so often. So they had to pick it up, roll it up, pack it up, and move on to the next site. Now, later on, in the days of Solomon, they built a fixed temple. By the way, the foundation of which remains today in the land over there in Jerusalem. But anyway, under these pillars, there were sockets, you know, and these boards would sit in these sockets. These sockets were made of silver, and these sockets were made of silver was called atonement money. Everything pictured the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Twenty years up and older, men had to produce money, 20 shekels that went toward the um, treasury to buy that silver. Money, cost, precious money, the value. It was important that when they brought the sacrifice to the tabernacle, that it cost them something. That it wasn't something with a blemish. Oh, I don't need this ox. Or I don't need this calf today. I'm going to skirt this one underneath the eyes of the priest. They won't notice it, but God will, you see. And those sacrifices were without blemish because they were a picture. They were symbolic of the death, the perfect body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinless body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, uh, more substance. Notice what it says. Neither by the blood of goats and calves... But by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So he went to the cross how many times? Can anybody say? Once. He was delivered once for the sacrifice of sins. They did it every year in terms of the Day of Atonement. 
And that's what he really has an allusion to here. Although every day there were sacrifices going on. Why? Because there was something incomplete. When we think about the substance, and I need to move on because the best part's yet to come. When we think about the substance of Christ, we think about the superiority of Christ, the efficacious nature of the death of Christ. What did it do? Well, real quick. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the puring of the flesh, how much more, how much more, how much more, infinitely more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge what? Purge your conscience. And so one's dealing with the outside, the flesh, the washings, the dress, the ceremony, the pomp. And one is dealing with the inside. See, man's got a problem. And the problem is in his heart. And those things were never designed to, do, to address my problem right here. I got a problem. You saw it a couple weeks ago when I had a visual. I got a problem. It's called sin. Somehow, mysteriously and spiritually, my father passed it on to me. I got a big problem. God said, I've taken that problem. I'm dealing with that problem. I've dealt with that problem. The work is finished. And so he can purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, I'd better move on. I want to get down to this legal aspect of the testament, of the testament. You know, one of the greatest blessings you'll ever experience this side of heaven is when you get a knock on the door or when you get a letter in the mailbox Now, you have to skip this first part because our initial observation of a letter from a lawyer is really not that good. Sometimes we look at it and say, this is from a law office, law office of somebody, and we're kind of like, uh-oh, we're afraid to open it. But upon learning the contents of this letter, that we, you, were included in somebody's will, it takes on a whole different meaning, doesn't it? The idea here that the Apostle Paul is portraying. And one of the reasons why he uses the word testament, because he's really drawing the New Testament um, readers and churchgoers to the idea of Roman law regarding inheritance. That's what it's all about. That's why he says here in the verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So you have the testator who is the designer of his or her own will. And what a happy day is when you open up that mail and you read that your name is included in somebody's will. It happened to me one time in my life, and it was a really big blessing to me. Um, You know, I mean, it wasn't a whole lot, but it was a blessing that somebody thought of me and put me in their will. I wasn't even a family member. I mean, I immediately thought somebody's going to contest this. This ain't going to happen. But it was a precious thing. And Paul here is using the analogy here the same way that the children of God are included in the will of God. We have been included in God's holy will. And so what we have, if you think about this will in general, there's three major components of it. There's the testator, or the person that designs it. I'm going to write up a will. I'm the testator. Secondly, there's the mediator, or what is more commonly known as the executor. The executor is somebody who is going to um, do the wishes of the testator faithfully. You know, when you draw up your will, you're going to make sure you choose somebody that you can trust to be an executor. And I'm not going to use the word administrator, although some people do. Because the executor has executive power. He can dispense that money or the property the way in which the testator designs. I'm not talking about a clerk who types it up like any older uh, administrator. And then, of course, there's the heir. The heir or the heirs, plural, that are included in that particular document. Now, one of the neat things about these Documents is in the beginning, and of course there's all kinds of different wordings if you do a search. Uh, some of the wording says something like this. You know, I hereby, you know, Stephen Aquino, do declare, openly declare, 
publish my last will and testament. And then it's dated, signed, and included in all the, this stuff. I'm going to leave Tyler $25, my entire estate. That's about all it's going to be worth. <clears throat> and I'm going to sign it. You know that piece of paper is worthless unless it's signed? That piece of paper is worthless unless it's signed. Look at verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people. What would happen? What happened? Verse 18. He dedicated the testament with blood. He sprinkled them all. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he signed God's last will and testament. He made it sure. That's why I like the idea in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is the surety of the covenant. You see, he's the testator, he's the mediator, and he's the heir all in one. Now, you and I might have a will, but it might be contested. Some long-lost cousin of yours might come into probate court. You know, this is what I understand. I may be wrong. But you can write up a will and have it signed, notarized, and put it in your safe deposit box. Put it in your file cabinet. It means nothing until the day you die. And when you die, somebody carries it to the register of wills over here at the probate court, and it's certified. At that point, some long-lost cousin of yours, some, somebody that nobody ever heard of, pops up and says, I should be in that will, or he shouldn't, because in those wills, there's something else included. This is my last will and testament. All other wills are hereby revoked. They're nullified. They're done away with. The New Testament is God's last will. All other testaments, however old they are, are revoked. The Old Testament is revoked. It's finished. Why are you trying to justify yourself by the works of the law, the dead works of the law, the lifeless works of the law? You are heirs of God's heavenly kingdom, his New Testament. Now watch this. Nobody is going to show up in the court of God's holy tribunal and claim that they're included in that will. Because some wills, and we're speaking naturally, so it's imperfect, but some wills will actually have an inclusion that says something like this. Unless your name is written in that will, you are not privileged to be a beneficiary of my estate or property. You are not included. Now, those hard words, but they do say that nowadays, to reinforce the idea that only those so designated are included in that will. And God Almighty wrote the names of his elect children from every tribe and kindred and tongue on earth, and he wrote them in his will, signed it with his own blood, ratified it on the cross, and when he rose from the dead, God said, Amen, I've accepted it, and it's done. It's too late. It's too late to contest that will. The devil and the accuser of the brethren cannot contest God's will. It is sure who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. It is Christ. God justified. The hammer is down. It's over. It's finished. Shame when people today trying to write their name or somebody else's name in God's holy will. He's the testator. He's the mediator. He's guaranteed it. I mean, you and I might choose an executor who doesn't fulfill our wishes. He might die or they might not be able. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. We already read the verse. The scripture says in the, in the 12th chapter, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant 
and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. How precious is the Lord Jesus that he himself will execute the Father's will. Isn't that beautiful? Nobody can contest it. And it does speak better things of Abel. Thank goodness. Because the blood of Abel spoke of vengeance. But the blood of Christ speaks of peace. We're at peace with God. You see all those liberal ideas of trying to trash this idea of the judgment of God upon his own son, son, excuse me, and because of sin, fail to realize the need of humanity, the need that stands, the obstacle that stands in the way of our being at one with God Almighty. We are blessed to be included in God's wonderful will. And I'm going to close with this thought. Because somebody here might this morning ask, how is it that I may know that I'm in God's will? That's fair. That's fair. One of the ways, you know, if you uh, have a lot of property and resources and you write up your will and you've so dedicated your children to be included in your will, sometimes you show an act of love and you demonstrate your intentions by giving them an earnest of your or their inheritance, a little down payment, deposit. Notice what the apostle says in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. It's finished, we've obtained it. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? All we got to do is wait out the time. We're in, this, we're, in, we're in this earnest expectation mode, if you will. We're waiting for the... Uh, the probate court, if you will, I mean, it's finalized, but we're waiting for the dispensing of the ultimate glory, which is ours, that's reserved in heaven for us. The Apostle Peter, you know what he says to a couple, a married couple, who's as different as black and white, because one's weak, one's strong, one's emotional, one's not. He said, you know what you are? You're heirs together of the grace of life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We're heirs together. Well, anyway, he says, We have obtained an an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, listen here, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The promise of what? The promise of your eternal inheritance. God gave you an earnest. It's called the Spirit of God. You know how you know you got more coming? Because you got a little bit right now. God's given you a little bit. He's given a check. It's in your name. And it's signed by the eternal spirit of God. He says, which is, verse 14, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Redemption is complete, but it's not completed, if you will. There's there's another phase to our glorious salvation. Paul said we're nearer to our salvation than when we first believed. Romans chapter 11. How near? Well, we're as near, uh, we're nearer now than we once were, right? Than when we first believed. We're, we're closer to receiving our eternal inheritance. We're closer to that day in which the Lord will raise us up and give us that eternal inheritance, which he promised from before the world began. May the Lord bless you today. We are heirs of salvation. The Bible says that the Lord himself received a, an inheritance for his work. What might that be? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus exclaims before the Father, before the world, he says, I and the children which thou, which God, hath given me. Brothers and sisters, do you know that we are God's inheritance? That the Lord Jesus Christ Himself 
receive sons and daughters. We are it. Now, if I spare not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall I not with him also freely give us all things? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we close today. We give thanks that we are your people, that you are our God, that we are one, that both he that sanctifieth and those that are sanctified are all one, that we are in Jesus, united forever and ever, and nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Father God, now as we go forth from this place, help us, we pray, to be zealous of good works, passionate about being called, named Christian, that we are disciples of Christ. Help us, therefore, to take up our cross every day, the cross of denying life, to follow hard after thee. Forgive us, O oh God, for the sins that we have committed. But we are thankful that we are renewed day by day because of the continuing powerful work of thy precious blood. Cleanse our hearts and we shall be cleansed. Oh God, we pray, be with us now. We remember especially our pastor, Brother Stephen Lord. Wherever he may be, bless him and his family that is so dearly loved. In Jesus' name, amen. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.